Today I'm joined by Adam Lowes and we'll be discussing At Close Range from 1986. It is directed by James Foley from a script by Nicholas Kazan, which was itself based on the True Life Johnson family crime saga that ended in five brutal murders. The film stars Sean Penn as Brad Jr. and Christopher Walken as his father, Brad Sr. Now, Adam, this was your suggestion for the podcast. Why did you uh, Why did you bring it to me? It's just it's a film I've loved since I saw it, kind of late eighties, early nineties. It wasn't on Movie Drone, but it was kind of on BBC Two at a similar time. And yeah, I just I kind of fell in love with it back then. I didn't see it for a long time because I, I didn't have the VHS, and then when kind of the DVD market came about, I kind of picked it up again and and fell back in love with it. But it's just it's you know for me it's it's one of the finest like sort of American films from that era. The first time I saw this was in two thousand and four um, at a screening on a Sunday morning at the Curzon Mayfair, and it was for the book launch for Richard T. Kelly's book Sean Penn: His Life and Times. Because you know I was a huge Sean Penn fan for quite a few years. Um, we did a, an episode on State of Grace, which <laughs> I think is really really fantastic. Um, and there was hardly anybody there, maybe 30 people for, uh, you know, a screening on, on screen one in the Curzon Mayfair. It was, it was really great. Yeah, I was surprised actually watching it again, how good it looks, you know, how strong it looks and how kind of uh, well judged it is as a piece of cinema. It's a, a piece of storytelling, given how kind of, uh, you know, sleazy and horrible the source material was. I thought it's quite a measured representation of that kind of dirty underworld absolutely and i think a lot of that is down to um the direction from james foley if i'm being honest and he's, he's definitely got an eye for composition and he just knows where to put the camera which is obviously really important he's had a kind of spotty direct directing career post at close range he, he kind of lost some of that cachet with this film with the madonna vehicle who's that girl oh yeah right which obviously have you seen <laughs> wasn't that? Too, I, um, I've seen it, uh, yeah, a long time ago. But you know, it's it's kind of I wouldn't really sound it sort of class it as memorable. He did go on to make the underrated Jim Thompson adaptation of uh, After Dark, My Sweet. Oh yeah, right. I don't know if you've Jason seen that. Which is, yeah, yeah, it's, which is really great. And then obviously he did uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, which yeah. is probably what he's arguably most well known for. He kind of found found his feet sort of commercially, if not critically, with the. The final two Fifty Shades sequels, which is a bit of a oh, yeah, okay. odd move for him. After At Close Range and Glengarry and Ross, it, you know, you'd have thought it would kind of put it... Yeah, it should be flying up to the sort of Yeah, absolutely, the A-list. But I listened to a podcast recently um, where he was the subject, um, and he, it sounds like he kind of burnt his bridges in Hollywood. They weren't specific to what he did, but the, those those two Fifty Shades sequels are a way of him, him sort of... Getting back into the uh, clawing right. his way back. Yeah, that's it. It's his pension. But, um, yeah, yeah. But I've yet to, I've had a look at IMDb and I've yet to see. I don't think there's anything else that he's got lined up at the moment. But do you know how he came to be involved in that close range? I think it was was it through Madonna. I thought James Foley knew the producer Elliot Lewitt, um, who had ah, right, okay. commissioned Nicholas Kazan to write a script based on the um, magazine article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about the Johnson family. Um, and Bob Raffleson was attached to direct for ages, and he's another guy that's okay. burnt all of his bridges. Um, yeah, yeah, and they just couldn't get it funded with him. And Foley had been in the background, having read the script for a couple of years, saying that he wanted to get involved if Raffleson drops drops out. And so I think in parallel, Sean Penn had received the script through his 
girlfriend, which was Pam Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen's sister, um, uh, who he was seeing. And Sean Penn had been in a film called Taps. Um, have you seen that? The uh, film about yeah military school. It's got a very very young Tom Cruise in. Yeah, in that's right. A spotting role, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so also in that film was Billy Van Sant, whose brother is Steve Van Sant in the E Street Band. So um, that's it all how... goes back to Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, it all kind of circles back. And <laughs> when um, Sean Penn was engaged to Springsteen's sister before Springsteen really got big, Sean Penn had heard um, Highway Patrolman and uh, on a demo and phoned Springsteen and said, look, I want to make a film based on this. Um, can I have the rights? And he had the rights to it for about 10 years before he made The Indian Runner, which is based on that. So it all kind of links back in but yeah so apparently um i think pen might have been attached after foley and then as it kind of moved forwards and pen was getting bigger and bigger he ended up being able to kind of steer it i think that basically hemdale said they'd fund it if sean pen was attached and so then he was able to kind of cherry pick or confirm like Foley's place because he'd auditioned for one of his earlier films and didn't get the role, but they'd stayed in touch. Right. And then I think Sean Penn was homeless and moved into James Foley's house while they were just talking about the project. And then kind of a year later they got to make it. So they basically spent a year living together and developing the project, which I think is where some of the animosity between the producer, writer and the director and star came from. Right, because they're sort of they're feeling out the material, and it's kind of deviating from. Yeah, well, I think if yeah. if the director and lead actor, you know, have all the power, and they're just in love with the material, and you know, are living it and breathing it, then of course, you know, the producer and writer are going to be excluded. I just think there's a lot of confidence there for someone who's you know it's his second feature. Yeah, but I think there's something it's about all that time they've spent talking about it, you know, to just developing yeah. it and, you know, working through every little nuance of the characters, you know, to get the timing right, you know, what's important to people that age, you know, what are they looking for? What's Where do they get their security? Is it from their family or from, you know, the new connections they make as they're moving out of the family home? All of that stuff is there. It's really great. Yeah, absolutely. I think Penn was instrumental in obviously casting his brother and his mother, um, and also Christopher Walken, who he'd seen in Hurley Burley. It's interesting because his mum actually plays his, his grandma in this, doesn't she? Yeah, it's a little unfair, I thought. <laughs> yeah. But I guess the mum is well, supposed to be, you know, like a teenage bride, isn't it? You know, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think Brad yeah, Senior, he likes them young, doesn't he? <laughs> he? He definitely does. He definitely does. And his his girlfriend in the in the film, she's uh, played by is it Candy Clark, who was kind of. Yeah, she was in America. You know, she was a sort of prominent seventies figure, wasn't she? She's an American graffiti and kind yeah, of. Yeah, she was nominated for American Graffiti. Right. Okay. And I think in this film she plays. Is it Mary Lou? Yes. And then in the Man Who Fell to Earth, she plays Mary Sue. She was actually married to Marjo Gortner for a while. Do you know that guy? He's in Star Crash. Oh yes, yes, yeah. So obviously you've got um, the opening shots, which. For me, there's, there's, it's hard to push Skull and Iconic, but they're definitely sort of striking. I mean, it, it kind of positions like Penn as a sort of latter-day James Dean, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Foley said that East of Eden was uh, a visual reference for this film, this idea that you take widescreen and use it to 
make something intimate and personal. Yeah, those op opening shots of Penn dro just driving, you know, and it's clever. There's no use of, you know, diegetic music just to sort of under underpin his coolness. This is when you first hear the score for the film, which is by a composer called Patrick Leonard, who was a frequent um, collaborator with Madonna back in the day, obviously. So that's where kind of her involvement came as well. He uses, so it's, it's Madonna's Live to Tell, which was kind of a top five hit back in the day. It's, it's quite a simple um, few notes, isn't it? But they're really sort of effective, quite brooding. Yeah, yeah, I'd say they are to begin with. It's kind of my only niggle with the film is the repetition. You know, that's all the score is, is slight variations right. on the theme of Live to Tell by Madonna. And she gets like the yeah. first title credit at the end, doesn't she? Film she finishes does, she and does. it's like, but, song by Madonna. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which is obviously some sort of contractual thing, but it's a bit odd. But I, I kind of, I know what you're saying, but I kind of like the way that the, the, those kind of, it, throughout the film, those few sort of notes are arranged quite differently. They're quite, you know, it's yeah, similar, but there's it's a... kind of haunting subtlety, to begin with. Yeah, and there's a subtlety there with each one, and they, they kind of turn it, they kind of twist it a little bit just to kind of um, reflect the, the scene that it's been played over, really. Yeah, I guess, I guess you're right, but I mean, if you went out and bought it as a soundtrack... Oh, yeah, you'd be... <laughs> it would be, it'd be like a three-hour version of the same song. It'd be, like, torturous. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be fair, that was... I always remember that opening, the, the opening music that, re yeah, that sure. was the first thing it's that really great. grabbed yeah, me. They, no. The first first four or five times they use the music is it is really effective and haunting yeah and then you know i'm maybe i'm just nitpicking for the sake of finding something negative to say but a couple of times it does sort of like okay you could have just come up with another theme something something, something different yeah yeah just, yeah You've got Fright Night Stephen Jeffries. I don't know if you were familiar with him at all. No. He's he's um, Chris Penn's friend around the beginning. Oh, yeah, the little fella. Yeah, so he's interesting sort of side history here. So he was kind of big as in the 80s playing the sort of geeky, sort of weirdo sidekick. Um, he was also in a film called Catholic Boys. You ever seen that? Heaven, A.K.A. Heaven Help Us. It's like a coming-of-age film set in the 60s in like Catholic school with oh, no. Kevin Dillon and Andrew McCarthy. Uh, no, no, it's, 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 right a, it's a nice little film. It's got Do Donald Sutherland's in it. He plays like um, a priest. Okay. But anyway, S Stephen Jeffries subsequently went on to um, have like a really long career as a gay porn director and actor. Oh, right, okay. With a, with a weird pseudonym. And he sort of dips his toe back into like mainstream stuff very occasionally. I say mainstream, it's all kind of like down and dirty director video stuff. But oh, yeah, yeah okay. so he went, on, he went on a kind of different path. All right, uh, and well, yeah, whatever pays the bills. And then you've obviously you talked about Chris Penn as well, who is fantastic in this film. Yeah, he's really good. He's kind of, he's one of those actors, I think he's more notorious just for his reputation as being a hellraiser than he is as an actor. But all the things I've seen him in, he's always been really solid. Obviously, he's in Reservoir Dogs and, and gives kind of a really great performance in that. I remember him and love him most for Best of the Best. <laughs> of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a good movie. He, I think he was. I think he won an acting award at Venice for Abel Ferreira's The Funeral. Oh right, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've never seen that. Was that another Christopher Walken film? Yeah, yeah. In this film, he's he's definitely got the sort of range of his his brother, the nuances. 
It's quite heartbreaking what his kind of journey that he goes through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about the casting of the, you know, the Penn brothers and Christopher Walken, you know, with Sean Penn dyeing his hair and they kind of all have these piercing eyes and, you know, there's a certain yeah. sort of sadness and danger to all three of them, which is just, it's really convincing. There's a scene oh, absolutely. about absolutely. midway through where they're all sat around the table at a diner and you can definitely feel, you know, it feels like a genuine family. One of my favourite things about the opening is that we're kind of five minutes in before we get any dialogue at all. We have that really nice kind of s- sequence of like, a, I guess it's just a shot, reverse shot of um, Brad Jr. looking at Terry as she's standing by the statue with all the other teenagers in town just kind of standing around smoking, talking shit. And the way he looks at her from the truck and the way she looks back at him, you know, the way it kind of lingers on that. It just feels like, you know, I don't know, it makes you remember being a teenager and how important that those moments of contact with another human being, how how life-changing they felt. I thought I just think that stuff is, yeah. is really beautiful, even all the yeah. way through to when they, they talk and it kind of has both the confidence of youth but also the insecurity. It's really, really well-balanced. Yeah, it's beautifully done. Just a little moment before that, actually, where he kind of drives into to the square, um, there's, a, there's a big red tractor that kind of enters frame, yeah, yeah. right? Foreshadowing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But it looks kind of, it kind of stands out like a sore thumb initially. It looks quite surreal. You see this, like, big open-top tractor. But obviously, it's it's a great way of sort of telling you where the, the yeah, sort of rules set, set in. Scene. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. It's yeah. just a nice little touch. I used to live in uh, Wiltshire and one of the worst things would be driving along the road when a tractor pulls out and yeah, just yeah, jams yeah, yeah. up the traffic for like 40 minutes. You know, a 10-minute journey sometimes takes an hour because you're behind some <laughs> tractors. Really intriguing. Yeah, we, so we see Mary Stewart um, Masterson as Terry. It, we, we kind of introduced her in those kind of fleeting shots. But then it, it, we kind of cut to another moment where we, we see, uh, we first introduced to... Um, Brad Junior's brother, and it's outside a liquor store where he's basically paid a guy. He's underage. He's paid a guy to go and buy him whatever some bob, and and the guys come out of the store and said, "Look, you're not having it. <laughs> I'm keeping the money as well." Yeah, well, we don't see what happens, but the the guy that comes out, he's just like, you know, this kid's a wise ass, and he's like, which one? He's like, the big one. You know, he's, yeah. he's got a big mouth, and he's like, that's my brother, you know. And you can see in Penn's face when he's saying, "That's my brother," you know, that's that's real. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I think um, Chris Penn like flips him the bird as well, doesn't yeah. he? This guy as if like it's kind of behind his brother. So then he doesn't get his drink, and he doesn't. And you you kind of half expect to see Sean Penn's like get into fisticuffs really with this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he does something. He does something entirely different. What you don't expect. It's, I wouldn't call it passive, but he, he proceeds to sort of climb on the bonnet of this guy's car, and this guy is like, "You're crazy, crazy!" And he drives, he drives away with Penn on the bonnet, trying to shake him off. Yeah, he's doing his own stunts as well, isn't he? He does that yeah, a couple yeah, of he, times. He, There's another point where he's thrown off the the porch. And yes, he does it all that's in one definitely. Shot. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's only 25. You should be doing your own sort of basic stunts at 25, right? Totally, totally. But it's in, you know, it's interesting because it doesn't position him as just some kind of like. Thugging away, he's got something about him. It's, it's, you know, he could easily have just descended into like yeah, yeah. this like fight, but he decides to play it differently. So they end up kind of this guy ends up kind of spinning around, and he does a couple of sort of laps around the the, the sort of main town fountain, and then he kind of gives That's up, right. gives up, and the, he, I think gives he, up the five dollars, gives up the gym. <laughs> he does. 
Just says anyway, there's something wrong with you, your kid, doesn't it? Yeah, you're a crazy kid. You're crazy. Yeah, so but that, it's nice. That, I think that's... I think you're right that yeah. he is looking for another path. I think you know deep down yeah, he's subconscious, and that that kind of illustrates that nicely. And then uh, it, so he he goes over and meets Terry after this, and immediately he's all sort of sweet and shy, isn't he, with her? And they kind of they have this kind of awkward exchange a little bit, and he, you know he tells her she's got really nice eyes and stuff. And then he does he he hands her a pill, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of drug taking in this movie, but it's, yeah, it's yeah, all kind is, of casual. Is. It's not. It's not even, um, you know, manic or uh, it's just something to relieve the boredom. You know, you see that with all the characters. And I, I think it's it's fairly non-judgmental in, oh, in its portrayal yeah. of kind of bored, working class slash poor people, you know, already kind of disenfranchised from the rest of the country, you know, with industry dying and all of that stuff. You know, they are just spinning their wheels, aren't they? They've got nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah, apart from recreational drugs, yeah. which growing up in a sort of semi-rural area, you know, I can kind of uh, get behind. So beautifully photographed that stuff. The really yeah. long lenses, you know, the yeah. the out of focus lights just kind of twinkling in the background. Yeah, I can see why at the time maybe the um, the reviews were quite critical of its glossy look. Um, if you think of the films that were kind of out winning oscars at this time period you've got stuff like on golden ponds and out of africa and passage to <laughs> india you know i mean it's it's the complete opposite of that it's like a whole new cinematic style and i can see why people might have just not known how to read it yeah yeah but i think that's why it stands up so strong now because it, it looks very bold it has its own kind of visual style absolutely and i think these scenes really typify it they're so beautiful and you know they just look like beautiful young kids falling in love you know it's it's really nice and and Penn looks great as well doesn't he he's got that kind of he's got that movie style look completely yeah definitely yeah like i said i didn't see this at the time um but it's nice to kind of step back and see him you know before the sort of grizzled grumpy old uh you know, <laughs> yeah. team america sean penn that we have yeah, nowadays yeah. you know i mean i don't know too much about his kind of early life i know he's sort of born quite comfortable um yeah and I know that he has spent a lot of time, you know, around working class artists and creatives and looking for something kind of authentic. He hasn't just stayed within the Hollywood bubble and just maybe cinema's purpose, you know, part of it is to, you know, celebrate those blue collar workers that, you know, hold oh, the definitely, country together. Yeah. So, yeah, so... The next scene is the, the, presumably the next day, and this is interesting because this is when um, Walken's introduced, and I really like this because it's done without any sort of fanfare at all, or kind of, you know, there's no kind of anticipation. It's just Penn's kind of fixing up his car, he's drinking a beer, it's kind of midday. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? he's, he's not too concerned with like, sticking to sort of social norms or anything, and um, Walken literally like enters the shop. He uh, knocks the door, doesn't he, on the, uh, the family, yeah, yeah, family yeah, home and yeah. strides in, looking for the mother. Yeah, but w w what's interesting about this is Brad Jr., his son, doesn't actually know who he is. And even Brad Sr. is kind of, he's a little bit unsure. He doesn't know which brother is which. Yeah, yeah. And he thinks Crispin Glover, who's playing Lucas, he thinks that he could be Tommy as well. You know, he's, Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't know. He's not sure, is he? So he's obviously been away a long time. Yeah. Penn's kind of, there's a standoffishness, but there's kind of a, 
he's kind of intrigued as well, isn't he? That yeah, this I think guy he is, he's just him. kind of yeah. There's a little bit of recognition there, isn't mm. there? But he doesn't want to kind of overly commit to it, does he? No, well, it must be fucking shocking as well for, for your yeah. dad just to walk in the front door having been absent for even if we say 10 years yeah yeah absolutely so you kind of have a kind of chat on uh, he said he, he says i think walking says how old are you now pen sort of gives him this rebel he's like old enough yeah and walking's like damn <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he kind of leaves and there's a, a wonderful moment you mentioned that chris mcgovers in this scene chris mcgovers playing this quite flamboyant flamboyant character surprise surprise and he kind of turns, he looks, he watches Walk and sort of leave the room and he turns back to, to Penny. He's like, who's that? <laughs> Does this sort of breathe? He sort of... <laughs> yeah, he's bonkers, Crispin Glover, isn't he? You sort of forget sometimes, like, I think he's almost too much for this film just because it feels such a an over-the-top performance. But, you know, having also been a teenager, I remember <laughs> there's always like one kid that's always yeah, who's just a bit too much. You yeah, know, yeah. watch too much TV. I think after that, it, we, we kind of it's it's in the evening, and Tommy and, and Brad are kind of getting stoned, watching TV. Another slight niggle I have with the film is that uh, Alan Autry plays um, plays Ernie, which is their it's not even their stepdad. Stepdad, it's no, just it's... their mum's boyfriend <laughs> who's been around for a couple of months, and he comes barreling into the scene. And uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're a fan of Southern Comfort. He plays a uh, coach in Southern Comfort and he was always one of these actors. I think he was a football player first and then just did a little bit of acting on the side. But after Southern Comfort, which I've seen so many times, I always think he's a huge star because I just grew <laughs> up watching him probably every month. Um, so when he came barreling into this, I was like, oh my God, he's in it. It's going to be great. And then he's kind of out. That's his one scene. That's the only scene, yeah. yeah. He's pretty good, though. He's pretty he's commanding, really isn't good. He? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And he's fucking livid. He just has to get up for work in the morning. Yeah. His kids are getting stoned and uh, drinking beer. And he has that brilliant line where he says to the, to the boys, he's like, Is it my beer you drink? There's Colt 45. You can't afford it. <laughs> can't afford them. Can't afford like, them. They really just <laughs> put him in his place. Yeah, yeah. you can see why he kind of loses his rag and turfs Brad Jr. out onto the lawn. Yeah, and when you say turf, he really flings him out, doesn't he? Yeah, he yeah, kind of does, yeah, he's some, he does a massive somersault. And he's giving him a bollocking, you know, about being disrespectful. And Brad, you know, Sean Penn just spits in his face. And that's where he goes fucking ballistic and flips him off off the uh, off the porch and onto the lawn. I, I always wonder whether that was improvised that bit because the reaction is, is so fuming and, like, so humiliated and so angry. I just wonder whether he knew that was coming. But this is this is the thing. This is interesting because this this sort of scene spurs Pen on to or Brad Junior to to call his dad, obviously, because he's literally been thrown out of the house. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There was a nice story. So you know, uh, he phones his dad. His dad comes and picks him up, and then they kind of start to you know go through their getting to know you bonding phase. But apparently, um, once the film was all kind of greenlit and they had sh- dates set for shooting, um, Sean Penn picked Christopher Walken up in a pickup truck and they spent three days driving across America to get to the location just to kind of do all of that. He said they didn't talk about the film or the script or any of that stuff, but they just kind of got to know each other a bit better, he said, over that that journey. Imagine uh, imagine going cross-country with like Chris Walken or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, that's it. What do you think of Christopher Walken in this film? Uh, I think he's... I love him. I love he's him. Really he's got his... It's, it's quite, he's got a sort of campy playfulness as well, hasn't he? Underneath yeah, he's that really sort of... charismatic, I think. You, yeah. You can see, you know, I don't know too much about the um, uh, 
the guy that the story is actually based on, but you can see how this character, you know, is able to charm and oh, absolutely. You know, run a run a criminal gang and a sort of small criminal empire and to bring lots of people in and to you know to work a crew and to keep everybody on their toes yeah you definitely feel like he's competent and intelligent and this is so so obviously brad genie goes to the house and this is when you're introduced to the gang as well that are kind of yeah. all just sat around i mean it's not your usual sort of outfit is it they're all just sat around the sort of living room floor yeah, watching they're tv really with cramped like, in aren't they yeah one of yeah, them's yeah. on the floor yeah, it's yeah, it's a really nice introduction scene. I like it that every time Tony Pine is introduced, he always just mumbles, uh, "This is Tony Pine. He's epileptic." <laughs> and then he introduces Mary Sue, doesn't he? And he's giggling yeah. and he says, "You know, she's only about five years older than you." Like Brad Junior is immediately sort of brought in, isn't he? There's no kind of yeah. They don't take him on the first job, but you know he's, no. he's got a home there. It's, you know, two yeah, third guys exactly. in the room are his biological uncles, aren't they? Yeah, well, he he says that, that it's that's Tracy Walters' character. He says this is your uncle Patch. Now, when I was when I used to watch this, I thought he was just kind of an uncle in the sense of like he was being kind of sarcastic, as in like no, this is his actual brother, him. I think. But it, and right. the R. D. Cool character is is uh, supposed to be a biological brother as well. R. D. Cool plays uh, Dicky, and he was also Dickie. Pat in uh, State of Grace. And he's in a yes. few other Sean Penn films. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool gang, isn't it? And what's, yeah. what's really nice, you get the introduction, you kind of see them, they all look a bit like deadbeats sat around in this cramped lounge, you know, watching TV, like not really doing anything. But you realise quite quickly that they're waiting to go out on a job, which is why they're all gathered there. So yeah. Brad Jr. sits down and they all just get up and go out on a proper robbery it's it's yeah, it's great it starts with that kind of the, the, there's an overhead shot isn't there of them breaking the glass on yeah, this. Right. and it's just yeah it's it's really well orchestrated and it, it's shot beautifully as well and I, I can't i suppose it kind of illustrates like just how sort of adept they are at the job really this sequence it kind of reminded me a little bit of um thief the uh james can michael mann movie that's that's interesting because that's when i watched the film again last night that's exactly what i thought i mean it's not as, as slick as that is it but no but yeah. it's a good double bill isn't it you sort of yeah, get the, yeah. you get you get the city criminal you know who's a bit of a bastard and here you get the uh the country bumpkin criminal who's a bit of a bastard <laughs> <laughs> brad senior slowly starts to, to sort of bring his son into that world and the first thing they do is to start by um doing a bit of money laundering it's a really nice scene, that isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It just sort of explains to you how uh, crystal clearly what money laundering is and and how to do yeah. it. Very, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very simple illustration of that, isn't it? I thought that was it's really good because you're like, oh wow, it's as easy as that. Basically, the, the purchase card on the drive it across, literally across the road to another dealership. Good afternoon, sir. Yeah, I just bought his car. Fifty-five hundred, cherry. Just give me 46 for her. Why selling it? I don't like the radio. This is where um, Brad Jr.'s kind of becomes like kind of enamored by his dad's sort of yeah, you devil maker. He's you know, got that devil villain. maker. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he is cool. You know, this is Christopher Walken, just kind of really loose and comfortable. And I saw a review at the time that compared him to like a manic little Richard or something. You know, he's got this sort of <laughs> weird roller coaster <laughs> accent as well, isn't he? Yeah. He goes to visit. Terry at a, a farm where she lives with her parents, and this is where you get um, a real good look at the sort of gorgeous uh, sort of landscape. 
Yeah, sort of rural Pennsylvanian setting. Yeah, I love uh, how far he walks to see her as well. You know, again, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, there's something definitely authentically teenage about. Oh, I'm going to go and see someone, and walking for like two hours <laughs> to go and yeah. see them. You know, especially a girl, and then he spends ten minutes with her. And then walks home, yeah. you know, and he's quite happy with that. You know, he doesn't feel like yeah. he's wasted his old day, which, you know, when you get into middle age, you know, every five minutes that you have to give to someone else is, is you know, you resent it. I just wanted to talk about um, Mary Stuart Masterson. I mean, again, the cast across the border are really excellent. And she, she's great. She's obviously older than 16 herself when she's playing it. Um, but she's, I, I like the fact that she's, um, she's a typical teenager. You know, she thinks she's more mature than she is. Yeah, Which yeah. obviously is, it, it turns it's quite disastrous, sort of later on in the film. Yeah, that's when she it. tries to sort yeah, of assert herself yeah, in, front her of the, in front of the gang. Yeah, it's part of her undoing, isn't it? Well, not Absolutely. her undoing, but it, it definitely brings her. It sets that chain off, doesn't it? Chain of yeah, events yeah, that sort true. of yeah. But so she, yeah, she's great. She's she's really good. And then there's there's a there's a fleeting moment where um, Brad Junior's mum she tempt, she says something she, you know words to the effect that don't like don't be suckered in by your father because that was what's happened to me yeah that's what happened but she's me. not she she's not particularly like strict about it she just kind of offers no and you know just in her choice of words she ends up kind of bonding them together by calling one big brad and one little brad you know <laughs> yeah. it just sort of it somehow cements the relationship instead of putting a wedge in which i think was probably what her intention was supposed to yeah. be yeah what's mentioned early on when the uh, the first heist is the fact that Tommy isn't actually um, Bratini's biological son. Is, but is or it's that, inferred, it's yeah, inferred, inferred that he it, might not be. Yeah, it's yeah. Patch just like stirring shit, isn't it? And then... There is a little bit of ambiguity, but then when they're in the car, so so Tommy gets in the car and he's really happy sat in the back seat. And then um, Brad Senior is, is quite dismissive of him. He calls him like the bastard, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he's instantly, he's like completely deflated, isn't he? And he kind of... Yeah, it's hard when it? uh, yeah, yeah, and this is when um, Brad Junior kind of turns to his brother and said, "Hey, you know, are you okay?" Yeah, it's interesting that um, Brad Senior kind of he calls him a bastard because you see this like flash of sort of malevolence a little bit, don't you? That you yeah, really the cruelty been... is there. Yeah, yeah, that you haven't really been privy to before mm-hmm. that. I, I love the just the central dance of the father and son, you know, as they as they you know fall in love and you know fall out of love and then go to war you know it's yeah yeah you know it's it is um i think nicholas kazan compared it to a greek tragedy so so we're introduced to lester in that scene it's a little bit clunky the kind of there's a bit of exposition in there that lester kind of spews out like a geriatric uh criminal still trying to keep in the game isn't he but he's also yeah. a police informant and everybody knows and you know it's a small town but he, so. he, he kind of he, what you're talking about there he kind of illustrates it himself in the dialogue which is a yeah, little yeah. bit yeah but he, he tries to pitch himself as like you know the mastermind that's playing all the angles and yeah know, like kaiser soche but you know he's not it's, he's just a, a banana basically yeah and, and walken has got zero time for him as well hasn't he he's yeah like, yeah he's betrayed him just, once hasn't he so yeah that's it. he's done. yeah Brad Junior pulls together his crew, which, which we chatted about earlier, which is the sort of young. Yeah, that's it. The kitty gangs, and, and they just go out <laughs> stealing tractors in quite a nice sort of eighties montage of, you know, theft and tomfoolery. Yeah. The, 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 there's a nice shot. Um, there's a nice shot where they're like um, like football players, and they're kind of it's a slow motion, and I think they're, they're actually on like what's like a football team, and they kind of jump up together and kind of high high five each other as if they're about to do like a play. 
I was going to say that I love the cut there. So as as you get this sort of the end of a euphoric montage of, you know, robbery, and then as they leap up into the air in slow motion, then you just get the sound of a shotgun that ends that shot before it's over. You just get like the boom of a shotgun. And then you cut to them like racing into the field as you see the farmer coming out and blasting them. And this is when uh, Brad Jr. gets buckshot in the face. Um, so you know you do, yeah. you can't just get away with it all the time. You do see that you know there's people out there who are suffering because of what they're losing and are willing to fight for what's theirs. There's also a little a nice little moment where the, the gang are kind of it must be like post robbery, but they're all kind of sat around having a beer and stuff. And Brad Junior is sort of spinning these sort of yarns that he's been told by his own, his, you yeah, know, his own dad, his uncle. Worship, so, though, it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is. And that's Maybe. nice because they're 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 really sort of you know they're completely sort of enticed in this like yeah, tall tale. Well, you know, Brad Junior is their passport to this life of crime. Yeah, which, you yeah. Know, if you haven't got any money, if you've got no prospects, you know, to suddenly see an opportunity that everyone's telling you is kind of foolproof. You know, you're not going to get caught. Nobody gets caught. These guys are pros. You know, you just buy into it, especially if you're some naive kid Aim, aimless sort of youth yeah. yeah that wants something that yeah absolutely so yeah you, you talked about the kind of the shotgun so um brad jr takes some um buckshot in the face doesn't he which is i like the fact that it's not um again this is all like, like the beauty of sort of editing and filmmaking you don't you, you kind of hear the sound effect and he kind of turns his head slightly and there's yeah. this kind of blood but you don't see like an impact ending it's just the way it's cut you know that it's oh he's obviously been hit. You don't, there's no sort of flashy sort of effects or anything yeah, like that. Right. It's just or makeup. It's just uh, he phones his dad and his dad says, "Look, don't come to me. Yeah, don't come yeah. to us. Like, haven't you got a woman? Go to her." Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that leads to um, one of my favourite scenes in the film with, with Patrick Leonard's uh, score. But it's again, it's a variant on it. This it's is really perfectly nice. placed, though. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, you see all, it's all the young gang just celebrating and drinking and partying and you know they go it's you know very uh very much like americana but to a flooded quarry yeah it, it, it this it's a kind of montage isn't it of the, of the gang kind of having fun and frolics but it's just it opens with the, the scene opens with these beautiful sort of overhead the cameras underneath and the the, the kind of kids are doing backflips into this this quarry like you say this flooded really quarry nice, isn't it? yeah and flying, again it's, aren't they? they're literally yeah, flying. Yeah. And again, it's just, it's all about that sort of the freedom of youth. Yeah, it's really nice because we, you know, we've seen the individual members of the gang, but we don't really know much about them. So it's nice that each of them kind of gets a little shot or a sequence where their personality is sort of underlined, underscored for us, just so we kind of know who's the who's the crazy one, who's the, you know, the, the stupid one, who's the fun one. So then Brad and Terry start to make, kind of plans because it's getting serious you know they want to kind of get a place and stuff which is a bit you know she's like 16 she hasn't finished school i mean you'd, her parents are like the absent figures from this film but i mean surely the yeah i mean she talks about them she's she says that you know they're going to call the police soon if she doesn't go home um and you know she is kind of under her mother's command still isn't she her mother's already grounded her for two weeks at the start of the film so yeah i think sometimes the only way you can if you can't negotiate with your parents, then you have to just go, don't you? And I think that's what she's she's pushing for. And she needs Brad to kind of make that happen. And for that to happen, they need some money. And for him to get some money, he's going to have to step up his criminal game, isn't he? And this leads to, to the scene we, we sort of touched upon 
early yeah. where this is the she's kind of introduced. Yeah, she's introduced to the gang. Let's talk about um, the DP for a second. His, his name's Juan Ruiz Angia. So he's, he's basically he's a, he's a Spanish expat that went to work in America, but he's he really likes kind of the use of like shadows and darkness, doesn't he? And kind of smoke to accentuate the sort of atmosphere. The stuff he does here is really nice. Yeah, it's really solid. It's really beautiful. Obviously, yeah. so I would have expected him to have had a long, kind of glorious career making beautiful movies. But yeah, like I say, it's really only his collaborations with James Foley that I've seen. Well, we're talking about the crew. Should we talk about Howard Smith, the editor? Yes. Did you look at yes. what, he, what he's done? Go and tell me. Is it... He did uh, Near Dark, uh... The Abyss, After Dark, My Sweet, Point Break, and Strange Days. Oh, yeah, so he's definitely in my sort of uh, <laughs> yeah, he is. wheelhouse. This The scene is Terry has kind of talked Brad Jr. into going to see his father at a local bar and to talk about Brad Jr. really joining Brad Sr.'s gang. And it's a scene with the two of them. She sat on his knee um, and they go and speak to the whole gang. And it's one of those scenes where you know, the scene leads with them and you kind of you stay with them as they sit down and sort of pitch their you know proposal and then you realize what a massive misstep misjudgment it was when i think boyd the character boyd peels off from the table first and just walks out and then yeah. you know dicky the brother goes he gives patch's chair a massive kick he leaves um What's his name? The epileptic. He goes as well, and so yeah. and then they ask um, Terry to leave too, and it's just father and son sat there, and he's like, "Don't you ever do that again, boy?" You know, he's yeah, he so of, angry. He's, he hisses at him, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That's when you realize, you know, the danger that this man poses. I think the rage that he has there of being like humiliated in front of his crew by his kid and his kid's dopey girlfriend. You know, that's how he's seeing it. Yeah, and I think. It's a really nice reaction from Brad Jr. because he's just stunned, isn't he? You know, he, he's yeah. really kind of just doesn't know what to say or do. His face just goes completely blank. Like that thing when you're being bollocked by a parent where you're just like, don't, <laughs> don't know what to do now. You're just going to have to let it play. Yeah, well, there's a little interim scene with uh, Brad Jr. and Brad Sr. walking in the woods. And Brad Sr. starting to explain to him the kind of hierarchy in you know, the wider kind of criminal organization or network. I know guys, and Tony Pine knows some, Boyd, my brothers, everybody knows some people. These people know people. Before you know it, you know everybody you got to know to get the job done. They have a little uh, spliff in the barn, um, and then they're straight in. They're straight into kind of gang robbery number one. And it goes, uh, it goes pretty well for Brad Jr., I mean, we start with the classic kind of back of the van stuff where he sat nervously looking at the guys, uh, the seasoned veterans in the gang. Um, and then they're robbing what looks like an old medieval castle. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, going, it's going really well. And then the security guard is disturbed for some reason. And he comes out um, where Brad Jr. is keeping um, guard. And uh, via a bit of quick thinking, Brad Jr. kind of points his walkie-talkie at the uh, security guard like it's a gun. And stops him from sort of alerting the police or whatever, and uh, they manage to kind of hightail it out of there without any issues. They go out for like the post post robbery dinner at the local lobster shack, and uh, everybody's patting him on on the back and uh, spirit, his, his spirit to high, spirit to high. 
Yeah, that's it. And his father is especially pleased with uh, with his contribution. Yeah, there's there's a real sort of look of pride across Walken's face as, as the rest of them. Yeah, are that's sort of... it. You just think things are just going to go better from here. It's just going to get better and better for these guys, this family. Across the restaurant, they see the chief of police sat in the kind of general area. They've got a nice kind of booth high up in the in the restaurant, haven't they? And they see the p- chief of police, and, and then Lester sits down and joins him and doesn't realize the whole gang are watching the table. It's a really nice <laughs> nice moment from him that the actor, he does this sort of double take and then this kind of faux smile where he's like, oh, guys, you you caught me at it again. Sheepish, I think, I believe is the, uh, is the appropriate term. So yeah, he, he kind of, um, he, he, they kind of leave the restaurant afterwards and Lester's kind of sat there and he sprawled over the bonnet of, of one of the cars and he's, you know, he's kind of being all poly with them and... Well, he keeps saying he wants to he wants to rejoin the gang. He wants to come out on a job. He wants to be part of the team once more. And they say, well, we're going out on a job right now. This is it. Now or never. And so he gets in the car. And then they're trying to get him to catch up because they've all been drinking and taking drugs. So they just plaster him with booze and amphetamines or something. And he starts tripping his nuts off pretty quickly. But they, uh, they make their way to, to a river and it all goes kind of... Well, it doesn't go too well for Lester, um, and it, it really is the sort of pivotal point in the film in terms of uh, where it goes from there. So, so Boyd um, takes Lester down to a river and proceeds to, to push him under and, uh, and basically drown him. And it's, yeah. it's it's really kind of casual, isn't it, how he does it? It's, it's uh, really cold-blooded. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he actually he holds Lester's hand down with one, head down with one hand, and he, he lights a cigarette with the other. Brad Jr. and I was seen the true extent of what the gang will do to obviously maintain their... Uh... Yeah, and there's something very kind of commonplace about the murder. You know, it's something that they're obviously accustomed to yeah, doing. Yeah, You know, there's there's no kind of debate about it. It just happens very organically. And I think there's something about how cold-blooded it is. It just kind of really affects Brad Jr. And his dad just turns to him and puts his uh, finger to his lips and just says, shh. Like that. That's really... Yeah, bone chilling there. Yeah, yeah. If you got Christopher Walken doing that to you, you're not going to wear. Balls shrinking up into your stomach, aren't they? <laughs> Straight away, Brad Junior. We see him the next morning working on his truck, trying to get it fixed, and he's talking to his brother, and he's just saying, "Look, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to earn ten dollars an hour. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's good living. It's honest work. You know." it's time now it's time to grow up basically he's kind of it's almost like he's saying it to himself but you know this sudden realization that a life of crime with his uh you know criminal father's not as attractive as it may have once seemed so enter brad senior all kind of jubilant still from the night before from a night of robbing and murder (laughs) murder yeah um and he's straight away he's cut off by his son you feel the bravery of um, Brad Jr. in that moment where he's just like, look, I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I want to have a good life. I want to, I want to settle down with my girlfriend and, you know, just kind of be an honest person. And his dad's just like, you know, how are you going to afford to eat? How are you going to afford an apartment? How are you going to keep your woman happy? How are you going to do all these things without money? Without money, doesn't he? Yeah, it's, it, it's safe to say he doesn't kind of take the news well. So then we next kind of we next see Brad Junior back with Terry making plans basically to, to to start. He's got this romanticized kind of idea of starting a new life with Terry. 
She's going to go and live with... Is it her uncle? That, yeah, that, but that I mean... Go and live with her uncle. He can get, like, a job down there. They can make a life. Yeah, yeah it's in another state, isn't it? It's quite far away. Yeah, but they're broke, obviously. They're just teenage kids. They've got no money, so... Brad Jr. comes up with the idea of the kitty gang getting together for one last big job. Yeah, they, they really go for it, don't they? And his... Yeah. And, obviously, they get nabbed, as you'd expect. But what happens is one of the, one of the friends, Stephen Jeffrey players, he kind of... He sees like a cardboard cutout, doesn't he, in the display window, and he's oh, he's like, "I've so got to have." <laughs> he's like, "I've got to have this," and he, yeah. he, you know, he breaks the glass and pulls. It, and this is this is what it sets off the alarm. Gets, calls yeah, the cops. yeah, yeah, and and they're uh, the busted basically. Next sequence is them in jail. The kitty gang have all been arrested, and they all get bailed. They've all got low bail, apart from Brad Junior, who I think we're led to believe the DA suspect is the ringleader of the kitty gang and they want to keep him there because of obviously his connection to his father and his father's gang the bigger fish i suppose and this is so this leads to um terry visits brad senior to ask if um she can go on a prison visit to visit her uh if a she boy, can hitch a ride with yeah, him a boyfriend behind bars brad senior and a crispin glover's character so they, they essentially abduct her and um, kind of plying her. This, she's sat in the truck. She's sandwiched between the two of them. And Brad Sini's kind of plying with alcohol. The, the taker, instead of taking it, obviously to see Brad Junior, they take her to a motel room. I say it's a pretty, a pretty grim scene because you you kind of twig early on as as they're plying her with bourbon and getting her to kind of relax that she's in a lot of danger. You just feel it already. Yeah, he doesn't necessarily start off with, with the idea of kind of. Of raping her, yeah, but I think, you know, she's, even though they've gotten her quite drunk, she's still very defiant, and, you know, Brad Sr. is saying, stay away from my son, keep away from him, and she's like, no, I love him, I want to be with him, and he's like, aren't you scared, aren't you scared of me, and she just says, no, I'm not scared of you, let me out of here, she's trying to leave, and I think it's him just trying to, you know, exert himself. Dominate, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. It's a horrible scene, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's it's difficult to ugly. watch. I mean, they, it's not even protracted, you know, it's just the atmosphere is there and then the moment it kind of escalates, they cut away, you know. Her screams kind of leak into the next scene, don't they? Yeah, it's very well judged. Yeah. You know, you, it's not gratuitous. You don't see no, anything no. graphic, but, but the build-up has been intense enough that you know what happens without having to be shown it. The next sequence is um, her at... Brad Jr.'s house sat with the grandma, so she hasn't gone home to her own house. She's gone to sit with his grandma, and she's in a dressing gown. She's been showered and cleaned off. So, yeah, she kind of she kind of breaks down, doesn't she, with the, with the grandmother, and she's kind of comforted. The sequence <clears throat> runs that the in that scene where Terry is with Brad's grandmother, the camera tracks back, and then on the cut, it tracks in really quickly as Terry. Finally visits Brad in prison, so you get this sort of uh, in and out oh, really? okay. Okay. camera move. Yeah, that follows her in, and we don't even see what they say, but we know that she's told Brad exactly what's happened because the next thing is him calling in the DA and uh, you know offering to give state's evidence. Doesn't go down too well with the with Daddy. Yeah, well, they start issuing um, subpoenas, don't they? So we we see. Um, we see Tommy get a subpoena, and I think that's enough for us to know 
that everyone's got one, basically. Everyone that's involved is getting subpoenas. You know, we're back with Brad Senior, and he's, it's clear he's not a happy guy. He's doing these big donuts in his truck. He's screaming, you know, he's, he's completely enraged. That happens for, like, a, a good sort of few seconds, and then he, he sort, of, sort of stops, and the camera goes to um, a crane shot, and it comes down slowly, yeah, makes his nice. way, so it's kind of parallel with the windshield, and the dust settles, and we just see Brad Senior kind of sat there very still, looking down at the dashboard and he just kind of looks up past the camera with these, these, these two, like, these dead eyes and we're like, yeah, this is, uh, we know what the outcome's going to be now. Very quickly, we're into um, a sequence of murders. I mean, quite um, quite nicely done that all of the murders take place in the in the same place. You know, the, the idea that they pick up these boys from the kiddie gang and they, they walk them out across the fields at night looking for tractors and uh, in reality they've dug graves for each of them and they just execute them and drop them into the graves. We see Lucas go first, the other guy. Stephen Jeffries. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just call yeah. his character Stephen. Let's call him Stephen Jeffries. <laughs> but then we, get to, um, then we get to Tommy and uh, this is... Yeah, this cold, man. It's yeah, cold. He picks him up, doesn't yeah. he? He's at the fairground with... Um, Kiefer Sutherland and a couple of chicks and his dad just picks him up and takes him out to the field where we've seen two previous executions. Well, it, it starts with, uh, they're in kind of silhouette and then yeah. on each of them you get this kind of beam just come up and illuminate their face. It happens with uh, Tommy and then with Brad Sr. So we know exactly who he stood with and then the lights stay on. You just get this kind of rich golden light over their faces with the blue, kind of deep blue of uh, early evening behind and, and the the you know the grave and the rest of the gang standing in the distance is really ominous yeah yeah and Brad Senior starts talking about a story about a coyote yeah coyote bitch in heat bring, bringing uh, the local dogs out to the coyote pack for them to eat and you can kind of see it start to to sort of dawn on Tommy that you know this is <laughs> he's not leaving this place Brad Senior asks him, you know, he's like, Tommy, if you were to go up against, like, the grand jury, basically, would you would you kind of dob me in? So Tommy's like, no. And then immediately after, you see his kind of, his face break, and he kind of lets out this plea of, like, daddy. And then we're back on Brad Senior, and he's like, liar. And then the gunshot goes off. It's yeah, just, yeah, it's just chilling. It's, it's just chilling. It's cold high, isn't yeah. it? You know, I think we all kind of grew up a little bit afraid of our dads, don't we? And uh, I think, you know, this idea that they could just kill us, you know, you, you sort of forget that, don't you? You know, in the wild, it's not uncommon for the a male lion to <laughs> just kill his young. You know, there's, no, there's not a shred of desperation as, he's, as if he's trying to, like, really cover it up, desperately cover it up. He, he's just... Yeah, that's it. Yeah, he, there's no internal conflict. No, no, it? no. He's, he's very just, decisive. Yeah, he's got a clear line of what needs done. So, yeah, Brad's now released from prison. He's back at his home with um, Terry and he's, he's, you know, he's talking to his um, mum and gr grandmother about the, their plans to leave. There's a nice little moment he goes into his bedroom and he kind of looks at the adjacent bed and it's obviously Tommy's and he, he just touches Tommy's pillow. It's just a beat, it's just a beat, but he kind of, yeah, he touches that and walks away. So then we're back at, we go back to Terry's sort of strangely vacant house. Her parents never seem to be there. And, yeah, Terry's getting her, th her things together and kind of Brad's fixing up the car, isn't he? We get a really nice shot on Brad Sr. and his gang sat 
around a dining room table working out whether or not they're going to kill Brad Jr. That's, I think, you know, we see Brad Sr. and his two brothers making the decision and even Boyd, you know, who's not related, it's too much for him, you know, and we've seen him drown a guy uh, with with his bare hands and the idea of killing Brad Jr. is too much for him and he leaves the gang at that point. So we're back with Terry and Brad Jr. And uh, they've packed up the car, they're ready to go. Everything seems kind of hunky-dory. And I think Terry, she's got a kind of throwaway comment, like, did we, did we feed the dog? And she kind of looks round. And then all of a sudden, um, bullets start hitting the car. I mean, the, the car gets riddled with bullets. Yeah, and as, as, did, the, as did the Hailstorm, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think in... In real life, uh, Brad Jr. took something like 15 shots, you know, including one to the head, um, and survived. But the filmmakers were just like, nobody's going to believe somebody <laughs> survives such a hail of bullets. So they they cut it down to seven to try and make it credible. And it's still a really vicious kind of scene, isn't it? The, the two of them are kind of thrust, in, you know, being thrown back and forth in the seats. Yeah, it's it's ugly and brutal and, you know, there's there's nothing kind of thrilling. You know, it doesn't even have that sort of Bonnie and Clyde sort of, you know, you get a kind of giddy moment watching the massacre at the end of Bonnie and Clyde where you're, you know, or um, Head 209, you know, where it's just there's, there's some kind of thrill at, at the carnage with this. It just, like, it's... It's yeah, this is cold. This is cold. Yeah, it feels like that's the end of the film, right? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely, it. absolutely. They've, they've been executed. It's all done. We've been cross-cutting back to Christopher Walken in the bar. You know, Brad Senior's worked out his alibi. He's there with Tony Pine, and they're just chilling, drinking, laughing. Brad Junior miraculously survives. I've spoke to you about this shame before, but this is just like for me. This is the kind of where this the film. James Foley kind of brings out a visual poetry to it all. He, um, we start with sort of a, a tableau shots, uh, and it, it's kind of body parts, and it's obviously Brad Junior's body parts, and he's hosing himself down. And um, as these, you, you see the kind of the bullet entry holes and the kind of water. It's, I think it's slow motion as well. It's kind of the blood's being washed away, and then he kind of adjusts himself and he starts kind of tying up his wounds, but the blood's, you know, the, the it's a the blood's still seeping out. I think, you know, if you're in a traditional sort of thriller, you'd, you'd see the kind of, the, the hero kind of struggling through. But, you know, it's much, like you say, it's much more stylized here. And I think that's what kind of makes it all the more memorable, you know. Hey, Dad. Let's start. Yeah. I, I just told them to pack the lies. Now I'm just running where they can't find me. It's good. Nobody can find me. You got a beer? Walking himself. He doesn't really... There's not a great deal of surprise, is there, when he comes to the door? He's not lost for words or anything, is he? He just kind of accepts him in. There's almost... Yeah, and there's kind of a glint of admiration as well, you (laughs) know. That he's made it, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, what's he thinking? You know, that maybe somehow Brad Jr. intercepted his brothers and has executed them and, you know, is standing here before him. You know, he doesn't really know what's happening. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's I guess it's when you've got like two powerhouse performers like that facing off against each other. You know, you, there's there's lots of things you can read within their sort of delivery and the faces, and which makes it mm. that all the more compelling, really. 
junior talks to his dad and he's like, yeah, I'm okay, you know, I'm fine. Can I use your toilet? That's when he's kind of, he, he gets into the toilet and he kind of lets it all kind of almost lose his, his composure, doesn't he? Because he's, he's that kind of oh, yeah. fragile. Like his, his legs wobble, you know, he's kind of, uh, his head's spinning, you know, we can really see that he's he's struggling. But, you know, the, the nip to the loo was just so that he could find his dad's stashed nine millimeter pistol which he has which he has struggle kind of loading doesn't he and cocking because he's is that weak it doesn't feel like he's really got a kind of plan other than you know get the gun put the gun on his father and and then he he just you know talks to him about well i think we see blood running down his hand don't we so you know he knows that it's time just to drop the bullshit and he's asking his father whether that you know that was the gun that he used to kill Tommy to try and execute him you know and his his dad's just brushing it off and you know trying to trying to save himself still yeah legend has it that Christopher Walken is uh quite apprehensive about guns on set so you know he always takes each weapon you know checks the checks the chamber checks the uh checks the barrel you know checks the magazine make sure everything is kind of safe for him to do a scene where somebody's pointing a gun at him he, apparently he's quite fastidious with that that sort of stuff and Penn knew this so once he checked the gun and the cameras were rolling he said wait 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 one second marched off set said to the props guy give me the other pistol and then came racing back on set and went straight into the scene and that's why Walken apparently is really bricking it because he thinks he had another gun stashed just to kind of unnerve him and it was the same gun you know obviously it was just a, one of those actors deceptions in the moment and it it sells it does sell that moment doesn't it completely he's... there's a, a really nice sequence with christopher walken where he's he's you know just saying to his son you know what is it that you want to hear what is it that i need to say you know do you, do you want me to tell you that I love you because I do, you know, you're my son. I love you, you know, no matter, no matter what. And I think that sort of keeps Brad on the junior on the back foot. Delivered very sort of Walken-esque as well, isn't it? With that yeah, sort I mean, of staccato sort of, you know, was like, what do you want? I love you, son. Yeah. Is that what you want to hear? Yeah. I mean, and it's convincing, you know, he's a great actor, but I think also Brad senior, is a great charmer and a yeah, great bullshitter. Yeah, yeah. And so when it's delivered, it, it's it's really convincing, you know, and it's only as Brad Jr. slips to the floor, you know, he go, he turns fucking bright purple. You know, we know now that he's, something is hemorrhaging in his vital organs and he slips to the floor. He's still got the gun on his dad, but he's turned bright purple. You know, we see that consciousness is, you know, he's, he's only a step away from losing consciousness yeah and that's the point when any dad would just be like okay fine look let me help you let me at least dress your wounds and brad senior just stands there doesn't he stands back as sort of wry smile on his face as he's watching his son slip away i mean we hear sirens in the distance but that's the that's how the scene ends we we don't even know what the conclusion is just this quiet moment between a father and son there's one there's one key line though from brad um, junior before he kind of slips down and he he just says I ain't you in response to kind of avenging his kind of friends and family no no I ain't you 
But this is too easy. I want you to die slow. I want you to die every day for the rest of your life. And, yeah, that's his, I suppose that's kind of his redemptive arc, isn't it? That he, he isn't, you know, for, for all his faults, all his kind of uh, youthful sort of misdemeanours, he's not his dad. And then there's a nice crossfade and we're in a kind of... It's, it, we're in day and obviously several months have passed. Or it's implied that several yeah, months have passed. Yeah, crossfades to like a blue sky, doesn't it? So you get this sense that maybe Brad Jr. has left this mortal coil, you know, risen above. Um, but luckily we're just looking at a kind of classic movie ranger helicopter as it comes into frame and then lands. And we realise that we're at the kind of the courthouse for the grand jury you know this is the final sequence of the film we see brad senior and his gang have rounded up and marched into the courthouse we see brad jr's mum grandma and Kiefer sutherland still still alive thankfully yeah yeah and this is uh, i mean he hasn't got a particularly prominent role in the in the film really out of brad's kind of brad jr's friends he's i suppose he's got the least to do hasn't he sutherland but the most, yeah, they uh, survive. He survives, but you know, we, <laughs> you know. We, don't, we don't know why, do we? It's never kind of established how he managed to get out of it. But legend has it that that, that very shot at the end with Sutherland kind of looking on, that was what um, inspired the late great Joel Schumacher to cast him, in, well, get him in at least for the uh, role in The Lost Boys. We see Brad Jr. being escorted out, out of the helicopter by some police and he's got like a jacket over his head and he's got he looks like a gaunt figure doesn't he they're almost kind of supporting him as, as he's walking he's sort of trundling along and i think penn you know said that he wanted to start the film kind of ripped and you know seemingly indestructible and then this idea that he just slowly diminishes across the film until the final frame he just looks like a kind of it's a little bit come and see isn't it you know this idea that a child has experienced so much trauma that it, it destroys him. So he has that kind of gaunt, exhausted appearance, but he's still like a young boy. He's a teenager or early 20s or something, you know, but he he just looks absolutely exhausted by it all, doesn't he? And then the DA just asks him to name... Something like, do you recognise Bradford Whitewood Sr.? And what is your relationship to him? Something like that, doesn't he? And this is Penn at his best, his very best to be in my humble opinion uh yeah it's 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 great i mean he just he 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 can't um he can't bring himself to say who he is you know he's he's, he's choking on it and he just goes he kind of goes through the emotions his face kind of crumples up gets himself up he tries to compose himself by drinking a a bit some water and he's really struggling it is and you don't know even know what he's going to say, but you know when when it when he drops it, when he finally gets the words out, it's devastating. He kind of he says, "My father," and then freeze frame, and then uh, classic eighties freeze frame. Yeah, although it's a bit of an odd one, really. It's it kind of the the, the freeze on pen, and then it kind of the freeze frame sort of zooms in a little bit. Yeah, there's a weird, slightly unnecessary zoom, but you know, I'm nitpicking. It's still powerful, yeah. it's still powerful. And then we get a... Yeah, it's great. End credits, and the first one on there is a big, fat Madonna font, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's one of those films that I'm always kind of, you know, I chat to, I chat to friends on Twitter, and, you know, obviously people don't know as well on film Twitter, and I'm like, if they've never seen it or they don't know much about it, I'm always kind of like, yeah, you got to watch this. I'm always kind of championing it. 
Um, I, in fact, I, I did a tweet a couple months back, just kind of tweet a picture of it and just kind of give it a mini review. And um, Eric Red picked up on it. Um, the guy that, yeah, the Hitcher and Near Dark. We've, I've interviewed him a few years back, so we're still kind of on friendly terms. And yeah, he just kind of echoed like my sort of appreciation for the film. I mean, I think it completely deserves a kind of place amongst some of the best, you know, the best offerings of that decade, really, in terms of US cinema. 